the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. It's just about eight minutes past the hour, hour number two here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline. You might have heard the news. If you didn't hear it, you will certainly feel it. Not significant, but, you know, when you see your cable bill go up, or in this case, your Netflix bill go up, you, you take note of that. That indeed will be happening as Netflix is uh, promising to increase uh, their rates in 2019. And, of course, a lot of Folks then want to go shopping and see if there's better deals out there. And while there might be some uh, competition between the different services available and new ones coming online all the time, I understand Disney's going to get into the fray with uh, on-demand video service as well. The one issue that repeatedly comes up again and again and again and is steadfastly ignored by program service providers like Netflix um, and many of the uh, the online networks, and that is when are we going to start to pay attention to the impact that violent content plays on young children? Now, I got to tell you, I do most of my viewing online, and there are programs that I see promote, and I think, well, that looks like a decent, wholesome program, and you get 10 minutes into it, and suddenly, even though it's got a rating that seems to be appropriate for, for a family viewing, turns out to be anything but. Joining me is Tim Winter, president of the Parents Television Council. Tim, I know that I'm beating a, a drum in, in, in this situation that is, you know, 30 years old in terms of how long I've been talking about this. But I, I have to wonder, at what point is there a breaking point with parents, with the people that pay for these services to say, you know, there's got to be a line of demarcation between what is appropriate for children viewing and what is not appropriate for children's viewing. And yet the lines seem to be increasingly blurred. Well, Craig, good evening to you and your listeners from Hollywood. It's a pleasure to be on the horn here with you. Uh, I think you have beautifully summed up a very concerning issue for, for millions of parents, millions of families, even people who might even have grandkids and their, their kids are out of the house. Uh, more and more people are turning to non-traditional forms uh, for their entertainment media, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, that type of thing. Um, and, you know, a lot of people do it because they don't like the big bundle of, of, of cable networks. They, they feel they have more control for their kids when they're watching something online. But the reality is, in order to bring in some of these very positive, enjoyable programs on, uh, on some of these streaming media platforms, you're also inviting in some of the most toxic, harmful programming we've ever seen produced in Hollywood uh, when it comes to uh, the well-being of children. Much of it is being marketed to children. Um, you have you know, shows on Netflix like 13 Reasons Why, which is a show that, that romanticized teen suicide. And after that show came out, the, the Google search term for how do I kill my, myself spiked up 26% right after the show aired. So you know, we can no longer say this doesn't have an impact. We know this has an impact. The science confirms what parents instinctively know to be true, that, that kids uh, are impacted by what they consume in entertainment media. And it's high time for, for the Netflixes of the world and so forth to be much more, I think, more responsible as a corporate citizen 
uh, about how they're marketing this stuff, especially to kids. Some might wonder, Tim, well, is this a little bit of the frog in the kettle theory taking place here that parents are just so frustrated and upset that they've just kind of given up? And yet, I know a lot of young parents who raise the same concerns that you're talking about, that I'm talking about. So I, I, I don't know that entirely there's a sense of fatigue at fighting the battle. But I do have to wonder why this is not getting the attention that seemingly it got even 15 or 20 years ago. I mean, during the Clinton administration, for example, there was a lot of talk about uh, the creation of the V-chip, and this is going to control viewing, this is going to give parents more control, et cetera, et cetera. And so there seemed to be at that time a lot of emphasis on, well, if we don't stop producing it, at least let's try to control who has access to it. All of that seemingly now has disappeared. I mean, you, you look at some of the offerings on Netflix or on DirecTV now, and it's shocking what kids have access to. Yeah, it's interesting you point out the V-chip. It, the V-chip was, is a 20-year-old broken promise. It was intended to help parents uh, be able to manage the media consumption that, for, for their children better than it was before. What we've learned with the V-chip, the V-chip requires a TV content rating in order to trigger. So when you see, when you turn on TV and you see TV PG, TV 14, a parent believes that there's some sort of independent body that's, that's assigned that, that rating. The reality is each TV network decides for itself how to rate a program. Every single show on primetime broadcast television today is rated as appropriate for children to watch. And we know that with all the sex violence, profanity, uh, drug use, other illegal activity, other negative influences, sexualization of children. Uh, we know that that's not all appropriate for children, but the networks have so proclaimed it because if they don't, then the advertisers won't sponsor it. So there really is a wholesale need for reform of the rating system so it's more accurate. I liken it unto when you go to the grocery store, you look at the box, the back of a box of food, you look at the, the nutritional value, you decide is this something you want your family to ingest in their bodies. Well, it's the same thing for the, the content, the violence, the sex, the profanity, and so forth. Is this what we want a child to ingest in her, his or her own mind? And unfortunately, there's a product mislabeling going on, and it's not serving parents well. I have to wonder, with, with all of that, I mean, there's certainly a demand for the entertainment industry to become more accountable. Uh, we've been hearing that drumbeat for many, many years. That doesn't seem to be working. Clearly, things like the V-chip, as you've just helped us better understand, uh, is, uh, is a, a, a lot of talk and no action. Uh, so maybe the notion of, of industry self-policing is not a very good idea. We've tried boycotts with various degrees of success at that. Some work, some don't. I, I have to wonder, and I'm going to sound like an old man when I say this, but I have to wonder, if they can't control themselves, is it time for an independent body to do so? Meaning, do we revisit something like the old Hayes Code and say, you know what, if you, if you can't be good corporate uh, citizens, then we're going to show you how to do it. We're going to have an independent body like the old Hayes Code of the 1930s and 40s and 50s to make you accountable. Well, there have been so many technologies over the years that uh, have, have been pr the purported promise to parents is the, the solution. Um, you know, when we got to cable television, it was an, the idea was that we'll hear something that's free of advertisers, and it gives us uh, access to children's programming that we never had before. But, of course, with that children's programming comes more graphic programming than we've ever even imagined. Uh, the, the promise of, uh, of the Internet and being able to have kid-centric programming with it comes all sorts of uh, graphic pornography and stuff within a few mouse clicks. Um, we, you know, we don't want government involved in our lives any more than we absolutely, absolutely have to. Whenever government gets in the way, ten, things don't tend to go well. But when it comes to a corporation that makes 
money, more money, if because of the potential harm to kids, that's really troubling to me. And and hopefully we can get, uh, you know, corporate responsibility enhanced through through public pressure. That's what the Parents Television Council is so good at. We hold these companies publicly to account. The reality is most CEOs are good people, and they don't want their corporation to be doing bad things and harmful things. But they have to be aware of it. We have to hold them publicly to account. We have to speak with a very loud, unified voice across America when we do good things happen. I certainly concur with your point, and I'm, I'm not trying to advocate for more government. And you're right. Usually when that happens, bad things end up happening or there are um, you know, consequences that we didn't think through. And, and suddenly it's either costing money or something's out of control. So, yep. you know, it, it, it's a question, I think, that, that needed to be asked. That said... Uh, Hollywood um, has gone through a, a little bit of a change. I don't know that it's as drastic or dramatic as some of us would like to see. But certainly, as we roll back the clock to just about a year ago, uh, th- this time last year, when all of a sudden Harvey Weinstein's name was on all the front pages of the newspapers, yep. and we heard more and more people say, me too, me too, me too, and realizing that the dirty little secret of the casting couch in Hollywood wasn't a secret at all, and it wasn't little, it was massive, and yep. so now there's been you know reforms brought in place and, and greater degrees of accountability, and more and more people are, are losing their jobs from, you know, uh, you know moving Movie moguls like uh, uh, Harvey Weinstein, all the way up to uh, you know the, the former president of CBS. So, with all of that, I'm wondering: Is it time now for for parents, in harmony and with the support of encouragement and direction of organizations like the Parents Television Council, to sort of begin a, a uh, you know kids too movement? If, if we can say Me Too, no more sexualization of women and objectifying them the way they have in the casting couch in Hollywood. Maybe it's high time the same th- thing be done for children boy we are absolutely on the same singing from the same song sheet craig uh, it, this is something that uh, the hashtag uh, me too also requires a hashtag our kids too because mm-hmm. right now the entertainment media environment they, they, is really it's unhealthy for kids it's toxic um the entertainment companies are targeting children with very addictive ways to get uh, to get hooked on on certain material and it, we we know scientifically it's harmful to them the science confirms what parents instinctively know to be true about the, 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 the impact on kids. So when you add it all up, there, there is, and this sounds a little bit hyperbolic, but I don't think it's hyperbolic, there is a war on children today from Hollywood. They are willing to throw kids under the bus just for the sake of more profits, higher ratings, and so forth. We all like higher profits, but not at the expense of the well-being of our children. And that's why we're, we're joining with just what you said. Let's call for a Our Kids Too movement. We can't allow... Uh, We can't condemn the very conduct that happens on these casting couches and then allow, during primetime broadcast television, all that very same conduct, the reprehensible conduct, to entertain us, for us to sit there and watch the sexualization and and sexual misconduct and laugh at and be entertained by it and then think that that doesn't somehow have factor into our, our value system. It's all related, and we so agree with what you just said. I've always had that sense every time we awaken to news of another tragic school shooting that it's sort of like, you know, Pavlov's dog, ring the bell, the dog comes to eat, and in this case, you know, feel slighted and violence is the answer. And, you know, we will then hear all of the cry of gun control and, oh, our thoughts and prayers are with them. We we always hear that. And, And we seem to be genuinely, at some level, shocked at what's happened. And I look at these 
incidents, Tim, and I think, well, wait a minute now. We've raised multiple generations where violence is entertainment and, uh, you know, violence is escapism, is violence is how you solve problems. And so, and 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 the same thing in terms of the, you know, the, the, the equal path, so to speak, of, of sexualization. And so then when we see kids that are acting out in a sexualized fashion at the age of, you know, six or um, 14-year-olds that bring weapons to school and shoot up the sc- campus and, and try to resolve the fact that they're being bullied by by killing people and acting out in a violent fashion, I think to myself, why are we surprised? This is how we've trained them. Night, it's dress rehearsals on television, and uh, and that's what the kids have grown up on. And, and this look, I spent a good portion of my career working in the entertainment industry. It's a wonderful industry. It can educate, enlighten, it can bring the world together in a positive way. And there is certainly a demand in our country. We have the right of the cherished right of free speech. There is a demand, and we have the ability to have some very explicit stuff out there that's not appropriate for children. But sadly, they're marketing it to children more and more. It's being put not just in the, in the television in the living room, but into a, a cell phone that's being held by a ch- child in his or her hand, and the messages are becoming ever more toxic and ever more personalized. Tim, I'm going to go into an extreme here, but but students of history will understand what I mean by this. Uh, the, the, the Nazi party, Adolf Hitler, uh, Joseph Goebbels, understood that if you want to own the f- political future, you need to own the young minds of young people. Now, am I equating Nazism with Hollywood? Absolutely not. But what I am suggesting is that from Hollywood to Madison Avenue, they understand that as you're marketing this stuff to young children, what you're doing is you are creating the next generation of consumers. And, you know, it's everywhere from, you know, tobacco products we got rid of. Now the kids are vaping instead. End result, they're still making tons of money with this. They're essentially creating the next generation of consumers and getting them hooked at the earliest age so that by the time they're old enough to make a decision for themselves, they really can't because they've been essentially, like the Pavlov dog theory, uh, been trained to do all of this. Yeah, and that's, that's why the Parents Television Council is here. We, we, are, we help to provide parents with a voice. We help to provide parents with a more informed media choices for their families. It requires, it starts with parents and parental responsibility, but it also means that broadcasters have to be mindful of what they air and when, how they're marketing it. It also uh, leads us to the advertisers who underwrite the television programming. They have to be more accountable for what they sponsor. And when it comes to these streaming media platforms and cable television platforms, please give us the ability to pick and choose and pay for just the programming we want. Don't give us 500 channels in a cable bill. Give us the 20 or 30 that we actually want that don't violate our values that actually provide us with the entertainment that we want for our family. I know. I've long said when I go to a restaurant, Tim, and I, I order dinner, they don't bring me 20 plates. They they bring me what I've ordered because that's what I want. And if I don't want chicken, I shouldn't be forced to pay for it. And that's your right. point when it comes to a la carte uh, services is absolutely spot on. Let me ask you a, a, an important question here, and I don't want to take advantage of too much of your time, but, but this leads to a very critical question. Some parents... I think particularly those that listen to a program like this are fully aware of what we're talking about. They're fully informed, and they say, you know what, I've got the solution. I'm going to pull the thing out by the plug. That's it. I'm cutting the cord, and we're going to lock the TV set inside of the uh, uh, you know, inside the closet. Now, that doesn't answer the question of how do you deal with laptops and computers and, and uh, you know, cell devices, but still. Some parents have taken that approach. My concern with that is if we say, I'm going to protect my family 
and wish everybody else good luck. Doesn't that fall short of the recognition that this is not a family problem, this is a societal problem? Maybe you prevent your kids from growing up to be over-sexualized little violent hoodlums, but what about the next-door neighbor who doesn't bother, doesn't care, isn't informed? They let their kids view and consume whatever they want. Those children then grow up to be those little monsters who then pick up the guns to kill your kids someday. You know, it's a very it's a very tough question that we face, what you just posed right there. We can't parent other parents' children. We can't parent other families. But what we can do is we can try to provide a healthier environment that everybody's breathing and in the form of our entertainment media culture and our content. And where there is something that is explicit and toxic, we as a, as a nation can advocate for it to be put in places where it's not marketed to kids, where it's not with, so easily within their reach, and that, uh, that the media environment is healthy for children and families. And I think we have to recognize, pardon the interruption, but I think we have to recognize here, Tim, that if we're going to say, look, even within the power of the Me Too movement, we're not going to prevent every single woman from now forward for time and memoriam never being taken advantage of or propositioned, whatever you want to call it, by some Hollywood mogul or somebody on the casting couch. We're not going to prevent, you know, and suddenly create like you're in a monastery, but we still have an obligation to protect women, and I think the same is true for children. You're not going to prevent every parent. You're certainly not going to parent other people's kids, but don't we still ultimately, as a society, as a, as, as, as a civil society, have an obligation to do the best we can to try and create as healthy and safe an environment for everyone? That's exactly right. We don't have mothers against drinking. We have mothers against drunk driving. And it's, it's, you know, you've you're, you got to be very specific about what it is that we're trying to fight and what we're trying to push back against, what we're trying to protect our children from. And, uh, and it, uh, it, it, you know, government does have a role. It needs to be a very limited role, but they do have indecency laws for the, for the public airwaves. We want those laws enforced. And if, if the industry is not going to provide a, a true rating system that's accurate, then let Congress uh, call them to, to a hearing and, and use the bully pulpit they meant to improve upon it. Government does have a, a role to play, uh, and I think most importantly, activist parents have a very important role to play. What you described is so, is so true, so accurate. It's, it's unlikely going to be the, the parents who are most conscientious that are having their, prob- their kids be the problems in, in society. It's going to be those who ignored it. But let's, let's give all the kids in America and all the families in America a healthier environment for their children to breathe in the form of entertainment. I know that it's frustrating for a lot of parents and you know ultimately am I brother's am I my brother's keeper? Uh, yeah, we kind of are. Uh, and, and certainly have been raised with those kind of values. Uh, it can be frustrating but you're not helpless. And organizations like the Parents Television Council exist to not only educate, but also to help empower parents so that we can have an influence on the industry and, uh, you know, hold their feet to the fire in a good way. Listen, a lot of good stuff comes out of Hollywood. Uh, so we're not trying to, I'm certainly not trying to condemn, uh, you know, what's the old adage, throw the baby out with the bathwater. But what I am suggesting is we need better controls. And I think, as as Tim so eloquently put earlier on, we need to, as as parents and, and concerned and in involve citizens, um, create an Our Kids Too movement as well. And certainly uh, the the ability of an organization like Parents Television Council to, to pull, unite forces, so to speak, and, and educate parents and pool those resources to have an impact uh, is available. Information available on the web, parentstv.org. It's easy to remember, 
parentstv.org. When you get a few down moments tonight, after you get home, you had dinner, put the kids to, to bed and whatnot, um, check out the website, learn more, get educated, get involved, and together, let's start a Kids 2 movement and see if we can't clean up a lot of the stuff coming out of Hollywood. Our thanks to Tim Winter, president of the Parents Television Council, for that update. See, Jarrell, I absolutely lied to you. I said we'd be done in five minutes, and we came nowhere near that. <laughs> all right, Jarrell's going to figure it all out, as he always does. All right, that no problem. You awake now? You with us here? Okay, let's uh, let's move happily forward. And uh, Michael Bennett, please rescue me from this. <laughs> And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We often hear stories about people that struggle with um, addictions of one sort or another, or in other cases, people that deal with um, depression that uh, is not of their own choosing, particularly in terms of a, a diagnosis of clinical depression where people sometimes, in spite of their best efforts, are fighting a a, a monster that they just can't quite face and deal with. What does it mean? How do you address that? I think that uh, while we've made some great and significant strides in the mental health community in understanding what so-called clinical depression diagnosis is and how to treat it, how to deal with it, for a lot of us in the church, this is still kind of a big curiosity. It's a ministry. Um, Joining me now is a gentleman who had to deal with this in terms of um, his um, ministry partner being diagnosed with clinical depression that eventually ended up taking his life. He talks about the story in a not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor. The book is called Laughter is Sacred Space. Ted Schwartz, great to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Fascinating book and a lot of turns uh, and, I think, ways in which we can learn from your life story. Your, um, your beginnings are kind of unique in the sense that uh, you were studying in seminary and uh, had full-on plans to become a, a pastor in the Mennonite community there, part of the, uh, I guess, what, the Pennsylvania Dutch community. Yeah, around that area, a little bit east of uh, what we generally consider to be the, um, the classic Amish Mennonite uh, Pennsylvania Dutch area, a little bit east of that toward Philadelphia. Okay, so that that yeah. uh, general neck yeah. of the woods. That and uh, along the way, uh, it sounds like God had different designs than you did. Is it fair to say it that way? I think that's a pretty good way to say it. Yeah, I, I, I think that I, I'm a person who... Um, uh, like many of us, I think we're confused by some of the directions that our lives seems to be taking, and, and uh, God's hand in that may may not be a very um, very visible at the time being. Makes an awful lot of sense uh, in retrospect. Um, I was supposed to be a, a, a traditional pastor in a pulpit, and uh, fell in love with theater while I was in seminary. And uh, I was an older student, a non-traditional student, married with three kids, three kids, and. Uh, and started um, a path uh, toward being an actor and writing writing uh, plays. And uh, I had met a um, another quite talented comedic partner, um, Lee Eshelman, and we began doing comedy together. And then and started working with biblical story and trying to find where the humor was in that story. Not not trying to make fun of something uh, by laying on the laughter on the outside. Um, I like to think of it as finding where the humanity and the humor connect and create. Uh, situations of humor out of, out of trying to uh, feel out of character from the inside out. How did your your community, Ted, your family, you mentioned it was kind of a, a non-traditional trajectory for you anyway, yeah. insofar as the fact that you were already married and with the family, and I understand that 
the congregation that was anticipating you to, to eventually uh, become their pastor was covering uh, your expenses and so forth. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. you make this what it would, from an outsider, it appear to be just 180. How do you go from studying to become a, a traditional Mennonite pastor, very stodgy and serious, you know, as, as I guess some perspectives might be, to suddenly being a comedic actor on a stage, working with a, a, another partner in yeah. interpreting Scripture, bringing Scripture to life, finding the humor, again, not the ha-ha, let's make fun of it, poke fun at it, rather, but to see the humanity side, as you say, of it all. It just, it seems to be just two absolute opposite ends of the continuum. Well, I think at one level, it really does feel that way, and my congregation back home was not very happy with me. I guess not, huh? Uh, And my wife has been uh, extremely um, patient uh, over the years, as uh, anyone who who starts their own business then knows that the pieces of of struggling to, uh, to make make ends meet in that direction, too. I think I've come to the conclusion that makes an awful lot of sense, um, because um, I think theater can be a wonderful metaphor for how we're supposed to function as human beings. Um, uh, to be a good actor means that you're completely present in the moment, uh, you you have empathy, uh, you care about another person, that's the only way you can feel like uh, you are connecting to one another on stage. There's a great deal of humility and vulnerability that happens when you're an actor on stage, and it makes a lot, a, a lot of sense um, uh, at one level. Uh, and also, um, it's storytelling. And, and story, stories remain one of, if not the best way to communicate truth and uh, to grab people's emotions and where their hearts are is to tell stories. Does it make um, it easier to, to see other perspectives too and I asked that question Ted because let's face it when you're when you're an actor you're you're essentially becoming someone that you're not and you're yeah, attempting you, to convince yeah. the audience that you you are this person whom you're not really yeah and when absolutely. you get into that position does it allow you to see things from a different perspective is, is that is that how you maybe yeah. eventually were able to say no this full-time pastoring thing in a Mennonite church no that's not exactly what I'm called to do <laughs> I, I think that was a great deal of it. I think it's part of why it felt like home to me. I felt like I was finally where I was supposed to be. I think I would have been uh, perhaps a decent pastor, uh, but there's a good chance that I would have been a very frustrated pastor. Uh, theater allowed me to find places where I was able to use the gifts that I think I was given uh, much more fully. Um, and I think you're exactly right. You have to learn how um, to care about another person uh, to be able to fully adapt on stage and to be convincing that you're you're someone else. Um, theater and acting is a wonderful paradox of pretending to be someone else and being completely holy who you are. Mm. The best actors are the ones that just open themselves up and let you see what's inside, and and that is why we connect to people that that we feel like are good actors because we can feel them being completely honest. So to uh, be con- completely. To be, to be convincing to those of us that are on the other side of the stage or the screen, as the case may yeah. be, yeah. Uh, you, you have to take on, so to speak, enough of this character and demonstrate enough understanding and, and sympathy, maybe to the point of empathy for who yeah. this person is, maybe the plight that they are facing to, to be thoroughly convincing. And I'm wondering, did, did all of that experience help make it easy for you along the way in trying to make sense out of um, the, the, the horrific challenge that Lee was facing with a diagnosis of clinical depression? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think that um, perhaps so. I, I'm not sure a, a, an empathetic person will 
be drawn, I think, to, to, to acting in the arts, uh, but it will also teach you. Uh, I think that's probably the case. It, it, it's, you know, it was a complicated relationship in many ways. We were, we were best friends, um, but we were trying to negotiate this business as well as creatively. And anytime anybody, uh, anyone tries to create something together, be it writing or writing music together, they know that there, there's certain tensions on, on what, on what, on what that means. And, um, sometimes best friends shouldn't go into business and sometimes they should. For us, it worked really well. Um, the illness notwithstanding. Um, you need, you spend an awful lot of time together when you have a traveling company. Uh, sometimes we spent more time with uh, one another than we did our wives. We used to joke about it being uh, our second marriage for each of us. So um, I think that was part of it. I, I didn't know a lot about mental uh, illness in terms of depression and bipolar illness at all before we met Lee. Um, and so it was a very much of a learning process. You you, you try to have as much empathy as you can for the struggles that they're going through, but sometimes life has to, life has to be lived, and um, everything can't stop around. Um, if there's a business to run, there's a family to run. His wife, you know, they're raising a family as well. Um, so yes, that that's very much the case. Uh, that it was helpful, but I think any struggle like that that you go together, there's going to be ups and downs with that, and. Um, uh, and, and it sounds like there were in this case. I mean, you're you're sure. watching this happening. You're trying to understand what's happening, and yet at a level. I mean, I, I guess it's it's not as easy as it might seem to be when we say, "Well, just try to get into the other person's head, walk a mile in their shoes." This is <laughs> this is it takes it a little bit further than that, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it there's only so much you can go. Um, uh, I think it was the illness that, that made, um, uh, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but there's some things that it's, it's impossible to know how someone else is feeling when they're, when they're struck with an illness like that. Um, my own depression that I felt, uh, after Lee's death and, and, uh, trying to figure out what was next and, and what did it all mean and the grief that goes along with that. Uh, I remember thinking a couple of times, I said, uh, I, I know what this feels like to, to to try and function on a daily basis with something that is much worse. Um, I don't know how people do it. Um, that gave me a little bit of insight, but it, 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 I want to be very clear that it was nowhere anywhere close to, to what Lee would have gone through on a regular basis, where simply getting out of bed feels like it's the biggest struggle you're going to do it, go through that day. Yeah, I mean, we're in a season, for example, this time of year, when a lot of folks struggle with varying degrees of depression because... It's for a first major holiday with a loved one who was passed on. Uh, there's there's some sense of loss in life, and uh, all of a sudden the holidays don't seem to mean as much as they used to. And there may be folks listening to our conversation right now saying, you know, uh, Ted, Craig, I'm there right now. Uh, I struggle with getting out of bed in the morning. I'm not quite sure how to get myself motivated uh, it's every fiber within my being to get up, get dressed, and go to work and try to put on a happy face when I don't feel like doing any of that. Um, what does all of this mean? How do I address all of it? Um, joining me today in the conversation, Ted Schwartz. Um, Ted, as we mentioned earlier, is a Mennonite actor um, who talks about life after uh, his creative partner took his own life uh, following a, a multi-year battle with bipolar illness uh, that he eventually succumbed to the disease. 
And uh, how do we deal with varying degrees of, um, be it depression to an, uh, one extreme, uh, to, to outright uh, mental illness on another? We'll get back to more of our insights today right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation today. Ted Schwartz is with us. His book, Laughter is Sacred Space, newly published, by the way. And uh, you can, of course, order a copy through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And, uh, Ted, is the book available also on your website? It is, tedandcompany.com. And company all spelled out. Correct. The and and company all spelled out. Ted, I'm curious, how did you get word of Lee's decision? Uh, I was making supper, and uh, I got a phone call from a mutual friend who was a neighbor, uh, and it's not somebody you, not, you know, it's a friend, but it's not somebody I expect to hear from uh, around that time. And uh, she said, um, the words, is someone with you? And those are never good words oh. to hear. And uh, said, you need to come over. Um, it didn't tell me exactly why, but it, it didn't take a lot of imagination to to uh, figure that out. In the moment, so, uh, we say we're shocked, we're surprised. But thinking back on it, is it fair to say that there were enough signs there that you might have seen some of this coming? I, I think the words I used, and, and I think a number of other people use the same words for similar situation, is you're you're surprised but not shocked, or yeah. you're shocked but not surprised. Yeah, um, it's those kind of those kind of issues that. Um, um, that I think anyone who's, who's been touched by it at all, uh, if, if from a very close or personal basis, would, would feel familiar. That's that's a good way to describe it, yes. On the back side, what would you say that you've learned from this? I mean, we look at these tragedies, and I know we go through the, gee, what, should I, what could I have done differently? What could I have said? How could we have intervened or helped? All of those questions immediately flood through your mind and, and we, we struggle with. But then as we try to make sense of it all. We try to find the, uh, what do you say, the, the proverbial silver lining in this cloud, yeah. things of that sort. Uh, I have started to uh, be in conversation with a young man of a similar age that Lee was who was struggling with a similar issue. He's very talented. He's not an actor, but we've uh, done some work together with uh, from the technical um, video aspect of it again. And I think it's to be there, to be listening as much as possible, to be empathetic as much as possible, to encourage them to see professional help uh, if medication is part of uh, a prescribed um, um, regimen that that you listen uh, that you listen and uh, what, what happens many times is, is especially from people who have um, perhaps a spiritual or religious background uh, maybe you're a Christian and you feel like this is not something my, my well-being should not be dependent upon something that comes in a bottle and we uh, and it sometimes um, they go off medication. Um, that that can be very dangerous. Um, that's often a trigger point um, for a, a deeper crash, um, which um, can have similar results. Not always, but it could. Um, what I've learned, oh my! Um, I think what I've what I've learned mostly, uh, you would say, is that uh, the depth of 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 care and the depth of spirit within the community that I'm in right now is much, much deeper than I had imagined that it might be. Um, what I've learned about dealing with someone with this particular issue is that um, 
um, you can you can be there as much as you as you can, um, knowing that there are other forces, there are other illnesses that you you just can't fix. Um, no no amount of talking or listening that I that I could do would change that. Um, And, and and what you said, I think there's perhaps significant because so often we get into the well. If I just said this, or somehow that somehow we we convince ourselves that we can talk somebody out yeah. of clinical depression. This is not an individual who simply is having a difficult time, sort of uh, shall we say, connecting right. the dots in life. And uh, one or one or two good lessons from a slightly older American will set them no. on the right path. No. Uh, this goes much. <laughs> much deeper than that and 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 maybe the efforts in trying to convince ourselves that we could have said something that would have changed it all miraculously uh is 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 really torturing ourselves at a level isn't it i think it is and that's that's the one thing that i continue to uh to struggle with i actually talked to another another um radio station this this morning um, uh, and I've started, I, I've written a, a, a one-man show based on the book, um, based on my experience, not just with Lee, but a large portion of it is the relating to Lee and the discovery of art and theater together and, and, uh, and his suicide and what that meant. And that um, it's not uh, original with me by any means, but the mourning is, uh, the act of mourning is, a, is, is just that, an action. You choose to mourn, you choose to do the things that are self-care. Um, it's a decision that you make. Uh, grief is completely different in that you don't know when it's going to show up, and um, it it and and I I say in the play that I, I made the uh, the sarcastically a brilliant I say it sarcastically a brilliant decision to not make a decision to mourn, but instead to work harder to recreate myself and my business as, a, as an acting company, and then to fight the grief. And the ways that we fight the grief sometimes is, not always, but sometimes is to deny, deny its existence by convincing yourself that you didn't care that much, that it didn't matter that much. It's the way that we try and protect ourselves. And it's a coping just, mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. It's a dead end. It's, it's uh, what I say in the plays. It's a bit like taking a rancid piece of meat and throwing it behind the couch and hope no one notices. <laughs> um, you know it's going to catch up to you sooner or later, but you just try and hide it. Yeah. Um, and and that, um, I think it's the biggest thing that I've learned is that um, um, <laughs> that that's not a very wise thing to do. Does this also for change you? Does it force you to become more forward-looking? And by that, I mean oftentimes we'll get stuck in the past on this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there was a suicide in my family many years ago, and boy, the amount of time that, that many of us spent on all the what-ifs and gee whizzes yeah. and so forth. And yet, I think instead of, you know, while there is a time of mourning and certainly the time of grief, then to say, okay, instead of channeling our en energies into what we can never change because it's done, what yeah. can we do moving forward to be more sensitive, more caring, more empathetic, put more into life, get more out of it, and, 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 and maybe make, make things better for somebody else, if not for them, for somebody else? I think that's, I think that's a, a great sentiment. It is astoundingly hard to do when you're in the middle of it. Um, I think that's ultimately where we need to end up, and I think um, I can't speak for Lee, obviously, but I think that's where he would want want need to be. 
um, I, I, I think what, what, what truncated my, my, my recovery uh, and healing out of that is I, um, I chose not to recognize the deep grief that was there and moved forward a bit too quickly. Um, part of that, part of what happened when they died, it's not simply losing a friend, it was losing the business as well. So if I was going to maintain my company, I had to, um, in essence, um, recreate uh, an entire um, inventory. Um, so I just began writing and wrote eight shows in two years, and ten shows in three years um, to, to create a new identity, to create a new brand, because um, most people that knew us as a company assumed that the, that the company was gone. And so it was coupled. It, it wasn't just losing my best friend. It was losing, um, it was losing a source of income. It was losing, uh, you know, all <laughs> the inventory as it were, uh, was intellectual material that was uh, stuck in our heads. That was the inventory. Um, so, uh, I probably moved a little too quickly, but I think overall your sentiment is correct. There's, very little that can happen in moving, um, moving back, but it's, it's a difficult thing to fight guilt. Um, guilt is such a powerful, um, piece that, that moves forward. Uh, anger is another negative energy that, that is easy to hang on to. Um, and both of those can be debilitating toward moving forward and a combination of guilt and anger, boy, it just keeps you spinning. Yeah. Um, and can be terribly, uh, paralyzing too in the end game. Ted, we appreciate the time and the candor today. I know it's a, a painful topic to to relive in a sense, and yet out of your pain and your your insights, you offer us, uh, oddly enough, a lot of the pastoral care that you set out to, to prepare yourself to do in the first place. Isn't it amazing the way the Lord brings things full circle? Ted Schwartz, Laughter is Sacred Space, the not-so-typical journey of a Mennonite actor, and the new book, as we mentioned, is newly published by Herald Press and available through Ted's website at tedandcompany.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.